There's also a very big difference between being kind and being nice. It's not nice to fire someone, but it might be the kindest thing you do for someone. Welcome to Hardly Working, a podcast about how we can improve work, life, and everything in between. These are recordings from live conversations on Fishbowl, a social network where professionals of the same industry have anonymous career conversations. You can join us live next time on the Fishbowl app. We have events every day. All right, let's get right into it. Welcome, everyone, to today's Fishbowl Live. We appreciate you joining us. Uh, today, we have David Siegel, who is the CEO of Mito. And David has recently released a book called Decide and Conquer, where he shares how to be a bold and decisive leader and not to succumb to fear. The book is a tale of David's journey through corporate and personal survival that includes industry titans like Adam Newman, Barry Diller, Jack Welch, Bill Ackman, and other leaders. So David, thanks for joining us today. Great to be here. I'm excited about the conversation. Cool, cool. Well, to kick us off, why don't you give us a bit more about your background and, and how you ended up in your position at Vita? Okay. Um, how does one become a CEO anyway? So I was an early employee at one of the most successful, having nothing to do with me, by the way, internet companies in the early days of the internet. In the late 1990s, there was a company called DoubleClick. It was ultimately acquired by Google for like $1.7 billion. And I was kind of in the right place at the right time, one can say, because in the late 90s, 97, 98, 99, there were not that many people who were well-versed in what was called the World Wide Web at the time. And when you ended up, quote-unquote, graduating from DoubleClick or going to DoubleClick, a lot of career opportunities were, were, were presented to you, for, you know, to such an extent that there's been over 100 CEOs of companies that have come from the early base, days of DoubleClick. I think about 150 CEOs have come from DoubleClick. And interestingly, my role there was actually, which is very not common for a CEO, my role there was in human resources. It is also not common for someone to go from human resources to CEO. And I remember the time when I decided to become a CEO, I was at DoubleClick and the CEO of DoubleClick said, hey, David, what do you focus on as you know human resources partner? And I said, well, I focus on helping to manage people and manage people effectively, helping to motivate people, helping to train people helping to improve communications between people, um, helping to recruit top talent, um, retain you know top employees, all those kinds of things. And he goes, huh, you know, as a CEO, I basically focus on the exact same things in my role. And I was like, huh, maybe I could become a CEO one day. And then I worked in a, a number of other companies. I became an executive at 1-800-Flowers, big e-commerce business. Um, then I became president of a, of a financial publisher digital company called Seeking Alpha. And then I became the CEO of a product most people know called Investopedia, which is the world's largest financial education site um, with about 30 million users. And then um, after we sold Investopedia, Adam Newman and WeWork came a knocking on my door and said, hey, would you like to become the first outside CEO of Meetup? Because WeWork had just pretty recently acquired Meetup. And I love Meetup. I've been using Meetup for a decade. And I was enthralled by Adam, frankly, and also the WeWork story. And 27 interviews later, I became the uh, CEO of Meetup. That's my story. I'm sticking to it. I love it. And for folks who are not familiar with DoubleClick, and David, correct me if I'm wrong, DoubleClick, like you said, it was acquired by Google and went on to become Google AdWords. Yeah. Right? So very, so, very large business. Yeah. It was probably one of the best acquisitions of any company by any company, like that $1.7 billion that Google had acquired probably has paid them back in the 10 plus years since the acquisition, a hundredfold, maybe 500 fold in terms of value that was provided from that acquisition. So um, it sounds like a lot of money, but Google more than got their money's worth considering how enormous Google is today. Absolutely, absolutely. And so Meetup, was acquired by was acquired by WeWork. You got recruited by Adam Newman. I just have to ask, I know we were talking about it a little bit earlier, but could you retell the story of your interaction with Adam and Rebecca Newman? 
<laughs> sure. So the first story in the book is kind of like a, a kind of a wow story. Well, the story is essentially that I got summoned to meet with Adam, which meant I was in New York. He was all the way in the West Coast because it was cold. It was January, February. And he didn't want to hang, he and his family didn't want to be in New York in the cold climate. So rather than having just a normal Zoom meeting, in order to meet with Adam, for the most part, you had to fly, you know, five or six hours or cross coast to have a meeting. And there was a constant parade of people flying to, to meet with Adam on the West Coast. So I flew out there and during the meeting, uh, we're having some conversations about a number of different topics. And suddenly, you know, his wife, Rebecca Newman, who played by Anne Hathaway in, in We Crashed, comes into the room and says, like, who are you? So I said, oh, I'm this, you know, the CEO of Meetup. And then she's like, well, what's, what's Meetup? And she was the chief brand officer of WeWork at the time, I may add. So she was a C-level <laughs> person at WeWork and didn't even know that the com company had acquired Meetup a good year prior. And so like, what's Meetup do? I said, well, you know, we're the, the largest platform for finding and building community. We have 300,000 different communities. We help you to meet up and get, get together in person. We've been around for you know, 18 to 20 years. And then she said, that's a terrible name. We got to change the name Meetup. It shouldn't be called Meetup. It should be called like We Up or some other, you know, We derivation. And I was like, you know, the name's been around for some time. I don't, I don't know if that's necessarily a great decision. And that was my introduction to kind of some of the craziness that we work where, you know, a brand like Meetup has been around for so long. We're, we're even having discussions of whether or not, you know, that name should, should continue or should be, should be changed. But, you know, it's an example of a, a very, Silly conversation, frankly, to to be having a lot of unique experiences being part of the WeWork culture, shall we say? Thankfully, Meetup remained Meetup and not WeUp or or some derivation of yes. the name. The name sticks, and I'd say most people most people are familiar with it. So, why did you write the book, and and what was the inspiration behind behind writing Design Conquer? Sure. So. I have always been obsessed with kind of the, the science and psychology around decision making. So many people make bad decisions in business and in life or are afraid of making decisions. And, and I see so many people are stuck in analysis paralysis. And I remember really reading something that Ted, President Teddy Roosevelt once said, which is the best decisions are great decisions. The next best decisions are, are bad decisions. The worst decision is no decision. I've kind of, always been obsessed with decision biases that people have, whether it's status quo bias and decision-making or recency bias and decision-making or sunk cost bias and decision-making. I've always been kind of obsessed with that topic, but I don't want to write a kind of boring textbook because those are boring and suck. <laughs> but the good thing was that we work with such a crazy, insane experience that it lent itself so well to teaching what not to do and what possible and, and what to do at different times around decision making, that the book is a series of basically ten different principles on decision making, but really storytelling and just you know hopefully engaging stories that will help people to become better decision makers and better leaders. And what really prompted me to do it was the fact that there are so many people that struggle in professionally because they're afraid of making decisions. They don't understand the importance of making fast decisions. They don't understand the importance of recognizing their biases. And it was just to really to help people be better leaders. Why do you think decision-making is such a hard mm -hmm. skill? Yeah. So here's why. People are afraid of failing. They don't understand mm -hmm. that failing is just part of the journey to succeeding. And, and failing is, is, should be held with a badge of honor. So the problem with making a decision is you could, it will result in you either succeeding or failing. If you don't make a decision, and then the opportunity goes away. It's like, oh, it's not my fault. I'm not to blame. It just happened. I no longer have the opportunity. So people oftentimes are afraid of making a decision that's the wrong decision and then failing. And then if they fail, they think, oh, I, my action didn't fail. They think I'm a failure. Mm -hmm. And they pers personalize it. So I think literally decision-making is so feared by people is it can result in negative impacts on people's self-esteem and exacerbating imposter syndrome and other things. When people don't realize that the best thing you do is make lots of decisions, learn from them as much as possible, 
and then hopefully get better at making decisions because of it. No, absolutely. There, there are a lot of things that there are a couple of things I want to double click into in that last statement. The first of which, and I didn't realize this until reading through your book, that when you joined Meetup, it was a bit more of a of a turnaround situation and not quite like a rocket ship startup that people kind of outside of Silicon Valley would think of. So how did your experience in kind of turning Meetup into what it is today under the guise of Meetup, or excuse me, WeWork, inform that kind of decision-making framework and, and skills that you're you're reflecting here in the book? Yeah, sure. So the biggest problem oftentimes in organizations that are not growing, that are not succeeding, is the culture of the organization. And the culture of Meetup when I joined was actually a really very mission-driven culture. It was about beautiful things, like very important things, like ending the loneliness epidemic that exists in this world. You know, 47% of people regularly feel lonely. Meetup helps people find people, helps people show up for each other, helps people build community. These are like core to the human experience and really important. At the same time, most of the people that worked in the company, not all, but most, not even many, but most, were kind of anti-business, anti-revenue, were very almost like running a nonprofit. And what happened was the company under WeWork was losing $20 million a year, which is totally not sustainable. Now, of course, that's nothing compared to WeWork's loss of a billion dollars a year, but it's still not sustainable. And what, what, what I did when I came in is I changed around every person from the leadership team and we looked to really change the culture you know, of the company to really focus on growth and smart revenue-based decisions so that we could be a sustainable business and not just be a company that potentially could get shut down when the pandemic came. And thank God we weren't. Well, absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, and I'd like to welcome up Alexis. Uh, Alexis, feel free to join in the conversation or if you have a specific question, ask away. Yeah, I do. Hi, can you guys hear me? Yep. Coming through great. Hi. How's everybody's day today? Doing very well. Thank you. Doing great. So I have a question in, in reference. So currently I work in a uh, e-commerce uh kind of situation here i do work in a call center for example though i have witnessed a incident with my management team where i feel like management is not being reprimanded accordingly and i'm trying to find out i'm trying to negotiate the right type of departmental paths where i can handle things um, without conflict where it doesn't bite me in the butt in a way mm-hmm so, for example, if someone in management is at fault for something, for using racial slurs or any type of hostile work environment features, I want to be able to report that to the right route without having it be an issue and me coming off as a strong individual. I just I want to know how I can negotiate that in a proper professional manner. Yeah. So, Alexis, first of all, I, I, I applaud your both asking the question. And also that you are, you, you're seeing something, you want to say something because too often, sometimes people see a problem and they don't want to do anything about it. So both are really, really important. Mm -hmm. uh, what I would say is, I mean, I think honestly, it's really important to trust the human resources or the people team in an organization. Mm -hmm. Um, sometimes people feel that they can't be trusted. Um, mm -hmm. but don't let a couple of maybe bad apples or whatever it is ruin your perception that going to someone in the people team or HR mm -hmm. team is, is, is dangerous. You, you need to be able to have a confidential conversation with someone from the people team. You want to document that conversation mm -hmm. so that your words aren't right. misconstrued and then make sure that the person from the people team can bring something up anonymously if you want that to be the case so it doesn't come back to you. But ultimately, mm -hmm. these things are extremely, extremely important and you want to engage with the people team to do that. If you try to do it on your own, it's going to potentially get messy, that you really need someone from the people team. And if you don't trust someone from the people team, for whatever reason, then go to someone in the legal team, in, in legal, but you should find someone that okay. you trust to be able to go to. Okay. Just to clarify, and I guess to further in-depth on my situation here, I am, thank God, moving into another job perspective. <laughs> I've worked at this company for a year and a half. 
I basically witnessed a situation where I have been bullied and reprimanded for a behavior that was not my at fault for. My superior is the one that has been creating a hostile work environment. I do work from home, so it should not be stressful for me to do the things that I do day to day. It is answering calls and emails. Granted, my management system here has, I feel like is lacking significantly because when I have spoken to HR and my superiors above said this person I've had issues with, it just becomes a very dismissive topic. Instead, there's nothing done towards this other figure. It's gotten to the point where I've had the vice president of our department come in and speak to my training team because there are so many issues in the work environment. And she honestly did the same thing, very dismissive behavior. Um, she asked for questions and feedback, but didn't want to give us the right information. So where I'm at in terms, I received a final verbal warning for my work behavior that I did not create on my behalf. They stated I said some vulgar language and it was directed at a specific person and this specific person reported that issue. I did speak to who was in charge of the incident in terms of recording it and for documentation purposes. And I clarified to them that that's not what was said. It was basically a he said, she said scenario. And they would not allow me to defend my case as well as my work behavior at all. They just wanted me to acknowledge the final verbal warning as well as the. Uh, looks like you are cutting out Alexis. I think a, a few members of our team have reached out via DM. Um, so feel free to uh, send your questions to them via DM and I, I can ask if your, your connection's not, not staying constant. Okay, not a problem. Yeah, I did reach out to HR and they told me to reach out to the upper uh, HR manager in my department who is on vacation. So I have nothing but to wait until he comes back. I just want to make sure this was handled appropriately because granted, there is still work, a uh, hostile environment going on. So I just want to make sure that this is something, how do you negate this kind of issue? No, absolutely. And and thank you for your question. We will follow up. I'm, I'm sorry to hear about that, uh, but, but glad to hear that, that you're moving roles. Yes, um, definitely. <laughs> all right. So, uh, David, go, going back to the book. So your book features 44 decisions that will make or break leaders. Could you go through a couple of the decisions outlined in the book and, and really provide some context as to how you selected them? Yeah, sure. Okay, so, you know, I start with decision zero, actually, which is the question of whether or not you should even take a job that you're presented. And oftentimes, people put so much time and energy into interviewing that they assume that once they get the job, they should just take it because they put so much time and energy into it. And I think that's very dangerous, frankly. I think there's something called sunk cost fallacy, which is that people will put so much time into a relationship and then feel like they need to stay in the relationship. So much time into being in a job in a city and they're like, you know, I put so much time into this thing, now I need to stay in it. And that's just very, very dangerous. So I think step one in decision-making is even when you get the job that you've been trying really hard to get, it's okay for you to pull back and say, hmm, Perhaps this job isn't for me. And it's not a waste. You've learned something through the process. What is a waste is then just to take a job and be stuck at something for a year, two years, and three years just because you had put so much time into the work that you did. So it's like recognizing that one's natural bias is to try to sell yourself. And once you sell yourself, you're now going to um, jump into the opportunity. But really question is what I would say. That's one example. You know, the other principle that I like to, I like to highlight is around being kind and in terms of making decisions. Too often people think of like the CEO as someone, the way you get ahead is you have to be an asshole. The way you get ahead is you have to stop on other, other people. Let's look at like, look how Steve Jobs was. He was so successful, or Jeff Bezos. This is how I have to act. But one of the principles in the book is really when you're making decisions, figure out how you can be as kind as possible. But there's also a very big difference between being kind and being nice. It's not nice to fire someone, but it might be the kindest thing you do for someone. It's not nice to tell someone 
that the work that they're doing is not as good as it could be. And there's, they need to make changes to their work, but it could be the kindest thing that you do. So I would say a key principle, aside from some of the things we've talked about so far, is how could you be as kind as possible in your job? But there's a big difference between being kind and being nice. Absolutely. I, I love that example. I think the world could definitely use more kind people. What are some of the challenges going back to your, to your point on decision zero? Say when you, when you choose that new job, what yeah. are some of the challenges that leaders face when starting a new position? Great. Okay. So a lot, but so number one is the most important thing that people don't realize when they start a new job. Your, your work doesn't start day one. It starts as soon as you accept the job, meaning you want to get as much information about your role. You want to read as many documents as you can beforehand. And a lot of times I find people are reluctant to do pre-work before they start. Hey, they're not paying me yet. Why should I be doing the work? The reality is you want to like start hitting the ground, hitting the ground running. You want to start with like, wow, look how much this person was able to do. If your whole first week is just like sitting around, listening, whatever, and listening is important, of course, as a leader, it's different than if you're able to actually have learned as much as you possibly can prior to a job. So I would just say, when anyone starts a new job, leadership or otherwise, find out how you can learn as much as you can prior to starting so you can really hit the ground running. That's thought one. Thought two is when you enter as a leader and everyone's looking at you, you really need to not talk, but listen. You need to spend your energy and time in your first week. So what I did is I set up a series of what's what I called listening sessions. And we invited, we had 250 employees. I, we set up like 10 listening sessions or so of, of you know, 25 people each. And we invited every employee to come and meet with me. So I had a smaller group gathering where I would get to know as many different employees, you know, as directly as possible. You don't want to be ivory tower. You have to be like really talking and getting to know the people on a personal level. And in those conversations, I would just ask questions like, hey, if you were in my job, what would you change? You know, hey, this company needs to focus on a business model that really works. So we're growing revenue and growing profit. What would you do? Things like that. Just like asking for people's thoughts and advice. And I think people really appreciated that. Because I think sometimes people think when you're a leader, you're supposed to come in and just say, this is the new strategy. This is what you should do. I know so much. You don't know anything kind of thing. But no, I think what you want to do is you want to come in, listen, interact, build relationships, and then put a plan together and not start too early with putting a plan together. Absolutely. In those, in those listening sessions and meet up, what were some of the biggest takeaways or biggest surprise uh, for you? Yeah. So one of one takeaway, for example, was that, you know, the previous CEO was an incredible person, truly a wonderful person, had a lot of pet projects and as, as CEOs oftentimes do. And those projects were like, you know, one or two people working on this project and three or four people working on that project. And, and they were just distractions. They were bigger distractions, than just the one or two or three people working on things. So my big learning was, oh my God, this company has like 20 things happening in parallel. No wonder it's not succeeding. And I would ask questions and say like, hey, why are we prioritizing this? And the person who was working in, in that area would be like, I have no idea. What I'm doing is really not that important. And I'd be like, wow. So, you know, most, I always say like the people know, people know when things are don't make much sense or are inefficient or just poorly led. And if you just ask questions about like, what should we stop doing? You don't need to figure it's, it's kind of obvious what you should stop doing and kind of deprioritization is more important than prioritization in my mind and figuring out what things we could deprioritize was very instrumental. in when I first started to meet up and after hearing that feedback from employees, that, that is quite telling if, if the employee on the project is telling you that they don't know why they're focusing on it. Right. What did you deprioritize and, and how did you, or what did you realign Meetup's vision around? Yeah, great. Okay, so we developed a work stream and one of the areas of, of a group of 12 people that worked on was what should we kill? It was literally, because here was my feeling. I can't start talking about what we should start doing unless we free up time and space and energy for what we stop doing. 
And, 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 and I could say, let's focus on this unless we stop focusing on other things first. So that was actually my primary was not to tell people what we should start doing. It was to say, it was really say what, so, so examples of things that we stopped was at one point, the company was developing a totally separate app instead of meetups app called meetup now. And there are 10 people working on the app, you know, you know, $2 million of costs on this app. They're working on it for six months. But the problem was the actual core meetup app had tons of bugs and tons of problems and tons of issues. And I was like, why are we focusing on this new shiny thing, a separate app, when the current thing that everyone's actually using has so many problems, that doesn't seem to make much sense. So that's an example where sometimes people want to focus on the new shiny thing when like there's problems in kind of the core business. And a lot of times, you know, it's easy to get excited about this new idea when let's just like go back to the fundamentals. Meetup is about helping people to find the right communities to join and the right events to attend so they can connect and build meaningful relationships with others. Let's just stick to what we do, not get super fancy and just do what we do at a basic level as good as we possibly can. That was kind of a primary driver of mine which is like, let's not focus on sexy. Let's focus on like core basic functionality that, that every single member and organizer at Meetup should be expecting. Absolutely. And what, what, something called, oh, go Jacob, ahead. you probably know what a Net Promoter Score is, but Net Promoter Score is one of the best bases for evaluating like the product quality. It's basically asking the question, would you refer this product or service to a friend or colleague? And when I joined, the Net Promoter Score was a negative Net Promoter Score, meaning there were more people that said people should not use Meetup than use Meetup. Today, our net promoter score is a 50, which is really good um, and just an extraordinary testament to the kind of the work we've been doing on, on the core product experience. Could you walk through some of the some of the work that you and your team did on the core product experience? One thing that I found really surprising was the focus on quality over quantity. Yeah, I'd love to hear a bit more about that. Yeah, sure. So... Number one is one of the things we found is that people who use our apps engage in joining groups and attending events in a much more meaningful way than people who are engaged on our desktop and web experience. So we put significantly more energy and attention into improving our app experiences, making it fast. We create two separate apps. One for meetup members, one for meetup organizers, so that the experience could be really attuned to their specific needs. Uh, we created a lot of new functionality within the apps and desktop too, whether it's searching by by maps and integrated maps to make the UI experience better, whether it's rolling out a better chat experience so that you could chat between members and between organizers and members, and which is extremely important to the, to our process. We created the ability for members to give thanks and even donate money on behalf of an organizer to thank an organizer for all the great work that they're doing. So, you know, the focus is really how do we enable organizers to make it easy for them to create incredible events and experiences? And how do we give members the ability to thank organizers and participate in those experiences, you know, effectively and efficiently? And, and how do we build like the right recommendations so that if you're interested in, you know, basketball, if you're interested in hiking, if you're interested in, uh, reading a great romance novel, you could find the right meetup group for you. So a lot of that machine learning is, and, and was, we put a lot of energy and attention into that. It's almost like a dating site. You want to match the person to the right group and event. Definitely. No, I think dating site's a great analogy and, and that discovery is, is incredible. This is going to be a bit of a broad question, but how do you in meetup define community and, and why is community important? Great. I love it. Okay. So I referenced it earlier, but community is defined in my mind as more than two people. Two people is not a community. It's a pair, but community starts with three people. You don't need to have a hundred people to be a community. You could literally be three people. That's a community. That's a small community. It's a very, very small community, but it's a community. That's number one. The second key ingredient of a community is that you can't have different people coming in and out constantly. You can't have an event and there's 10 people. And the next event is 10 totally different people. And the next event is 10 totally different people. That's not a community. That's just a bunch of events. A community is where a regular group of people are coming back to on a consistent basis and building a relationship with each other. So it can't just be one or two of the 10. It's, you know, half of people 
50 to 70% of the people are people that have come to previous events and they're coming back again. So the return is very important. The next Mm -hmm. thing I would say is a community ideally is not just the same people uh, constantly, same 10 people, same 10 people, same same 10 people, but key to community is new people coming in. It's getting new blood and getting new energy in. It's getting new, you know, ideas in. And and so community needs to be the the kind of the, the balance between having new people joining, very important, but also having, you know, the regulars that are part of that community. And also the reason why community is so important is because of the loneliness epidemic that exists in the world. You know, 46% of people, not sometimes, not occasionally, but regularly, regularly, Jacob, feel lonely. And among Gen Zers, it's 62% of people regularly feel lonely. So like when people feel lonely, it's correlated to anxiety, correlated to depression. God forbid a million times, correlated to self-harm or any of those other things. Community and meetup goal is to end the loneliness epidemic. There are 60 million people that use our platform, but there should be 6 billion people that use Meetup because every person in the world can find something, find a way to connect with us. Just like they could, every person should be using, you know, Fishbowl. Like it's, it's, it's a way to connect with people in meaningful ways that you would not have had beforehand. Same with Meetup. We, we at Fishbowl, we, we do love community and one, going back to the business case of, of Meetup. So community is spoken about a ton with startups, um, new niche communities popping up. We know they're valuable, that they create value, but they're really, they've historically been really tough to monetize. Where do you see communities flourishing as a business, as a standalone business? Yeah. So there's a number of different um, ways in which communities can be monetized. And and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the two or three broad categories. There's obviously the opportunity for a community to be directly monetized. So for example, let's say that you're a tour guide and you want to give tours in different cities. Well, you could use community as a basis to getting people to join your tours. And then it's kind of directly monetized. If you're a yoga studio, then another way you joint use community is you have people, you offer a free yoga class and come to your yoga studio and it kind of can serve as a lead generation for people to then become members of the yoga studio or your gym. Come to our gym community for, you know, a week for free. And then it's also a lead generation opportunity. Or you're an author and you want to build a brand around yourself. You build a community around your brand. Most communities on Meetup, that's like half of Meetup. Most communities on Meetup though are built for more philanthropic reasons. They're built because, you know, someone is introverted. They were able to get out of being introverted, not get out of it. They, they're able to find ways in which they, they can be more comfortable communicating and building relationships with others. And they want to help other people. Or a friend of mine who, you know, is a breast cancer survivor in Houston, and she built a breast cancer survivor community group and on Meetup to help other people to build community for, for her as well. In the future, just like social media was something that wasn't a thing 15 years ago, now you have multiple social media managers. I think there's going to be community managers that every company is going to have. So Google, for example, has over 300 communities on Meetup, um, and they use those communities for focus groups. They use it as, as testers for their products. They use it to build relationships for future app developers. They use it for recruiting purposes. Um, community is great for recruiting people onto, as, as you know, at Fishbowl, certainly. And there's a whole host of just direct benefits and indirect benefits to, um, you know, to community, like I talked about. No, absolutely. And you touched on, on one thing that I'd love to expand a little bit. Where do you see community going? Where do you see the future of either IRL or online communities? Yeah. So meetup was before the pandemic, basically a hundred percent IRL in real life mm-hmm. and the pandemic hit. And we had to pivot. We've had now, since the pandemic started, over three and a half million online events kind of on Meetup. Um, and now we're back to 80% IRL and 20% virtual Meetup online events. But I think the future of, of community is really in uh, the ability, is in smaller groups. I think too often people think of like the ideal event is someone with 100 people, 200, 300 people. Well, sometimes the ideal event is like five to 10 people getting together on a small passion and really building intimate and meaningful relationships with each other. So 
My dream scenario for the future of community is not big conferences, but it's small event where people can be their vulnerable selves, build relationships with others so that ultimately when they have challenges, they could be there to help to support them. And when they're successes, they could be there to celebrate them. It makes complete sense. So, so you're saying the future of community is really rooted in, in niche communities, which yeah, they have the benefit of being hyper relevant, but also from a personal perspective, you can become more deeply involved and connected with the people involved in that community. Yeah. One of the beauties, Jacob, of community, which you just alluded to, is the ability to take on a leadership role mm-hmm. in a community when someone isn't necessarily a leader before. You know, reminds me of a story of, of, of someone who, his name is Omar Acosta, and he was an extreme introvert. He never went to, um, really left his house. He played video games all day long. It was in Dallas, Fort Worth, Texas. He, before he would play video games all day, he would enjoy rock climbing. He ended up going to a meetup rock climbing group. After going three or four, the organizer left and the organizer asked him to step up and become the leader of the group. And he did. They've had over 900 events, like six marriages have come from the group that he leads. <laughs> and it's like, it's an example where what you're referring to is with smaller groups, a small 10 person book club, the women who want to just, you know, have a, have a safe space to discuss different topics or people of color, you know, discuss topics that are you know, specific to, to their backgrounds and, and interests. Those safe communities and those small safe spaces are so much more valuable than, you know, the thousand, two thousand, five thousand person, you know, big tech meetup group or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, so much more impactful on the individual's lives who are participating. Exactly. 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 Now, I, I, I love it. And kind of through your experience with Meetup and just kind of studying communities, what have you seen people do well in creating communities? And then what have you seen some people maybe not do so well in trying to start a community? Sure. Okay. So, so number one is persistence, meaning you create a meetup group, the, your first event might have six RSVPs and three people show up. And you know what? That's a fine start. <laughs> That's a fine start. And the next event might have 10 RSVPs and five or six people show up. And if you do your job and you get other people to help you, then you know it will grow. So that goes to the second. Persistence is one. The second is getting help from others. A lot of people who are running communities are a little bit controlling, shall we say. Mm-hmm. And I think the problem with being so controlling is that it's overwhelming. And then, and then people get exhausted in being community leaders. You need to build like a quickly, a, like a board around you, a leadership team where, hey, I'm in charge of this event. You're in charge of marketing the event. You're in charge of finding the venue. You need to delegate different roles to different people so that's not as overwhelming. And oh, by the way, when different people have different roles, they feel a greater sense of ownership, right? Just like in business. They yep. feel that this community, they, they, they could be stepping up and be a leader in that community. So as, as a community, as an organizer, understand that you're not annoying people to ask them for help. You're actually helping them by asking them for help because then they will feel a much greater sense of attachment um, to that community. And, and I think it's a very important best practice of delegating and building kind of co-leaders of your group. Yeah, I mean, I could give a long list. The next thing is at every event, you need to assign tasks. You're in charge of walking over to every person who seems like they don't have someone to talk to. You're in charge of keeping time. Like you need to really ask different people to take on different roles. And one of them has to be being a greeter and introducing mm-hmm. people, introducing people to each other. And, and I would say it never hurts to have some pizza and beer or some salad uh, <laughs> at an event because, you know, people do enjoy gathering around food. There's something special about food gathering versus not food gathering. Absolutely. I mean, free beer and pizza would get me to, uh, get me to a new event. Uh, <laughs> what I'm hearing is, um, really instilling or enabling members to have an ownership mentality yeah. community, and then really kind of helping they grease the wheels, uh, from an onboarding perspective, like showing up to a new group of people is, is intimidating. So how can you make that as approachable as possible. It's, by the way, and not just not just once you're there, but let's say someone joins your meetup group, welcoming them, 
send them a, a direct message saying, hey, welcome to our, our group. Why did you decide to join? I'm looking forward to meeting you at the next event. Here's my cell phone number. When you arrive, text me so I can make sure to greet you right in the beginning. Like making it comfortable, not just when they arrive, but to get them to arrive at that event. And the best leaders are, are constantly communicating with people prior to the event, after the event, after the event, kind of having a over, kind of a, a general methodology of just over communicating about everything and being as welcoming as possible is critical to community growth. Yeah, I love that. It's it's the little things that that add up and and really make a new member feel connected and welcomed into the group. Uh, so I'd love to circle back to to leadership. So you mentioned Omar, who had the ability to kind of step up in his rock climbing meetups group and and take over as an Omar uh, as an uh, a leader within the group. Your your book is centered around leadership decision making. What advice would you have for somebody who's looking to become a leader? And can they take can they take lessons from your book to help kind of grow into leadership positions? Yeah. First of all, you need to understand if you're looking to become a leader, you're going to make lots of mistakes. And of course, the best way to grow into a position, the best way to grow, the best way to grow is to make mistakes and learn from that mistake and reflect and be honest about that mistake and and not you know, brush it under the covers, but, but to say, I messed up and I learned from that X, Y, Z. So everyone can grow and become a far more effective leader. In my mind, there's really one thing that probably underscores everything in terms of leadership, which is the ability to build trust. If, if you're a leader and you don't have the trust of the people on your team, you really have nothing because most situations are neither good nor bad. They could be interpreted in lots of different ways with lots of different lenses. And if you, if you build the trust of your team, then you can accomplish anything as a leader. And if you don't have their trust, you have nothing. And the best way to build trust if you're a leader is frankly being as transparent as possible. Being transparent about mistakes, like I mentioned. Being transparent about the good, bad, and ugly not just talking about like a cheerleader. And then we did this, and then we did this. Then, like no one needs that from a leader. They need to hear, here are some of the things not going well, and here's some of the things that we could use your help on. Here's some things that are going well. That transparency is really important. So for example, when I first joined Meetup, something we referenced earlier, they never share, the company never shared the financials with the company. No one knew how bad the company was actually doing. And then when I stood up there the first day and I shared the financials, people were like, whoa, I wish I knew this earlier. You know, it doesn't help to sweep things under the carpet. And, and in the book, what I try to do is really list a lot of mistakes and failures that I've made throughout. And I think people appreciate that because it's, it's not like a direct road. You know, I, I've gotten fired not once, but even twice in different jobs. And, and I think it's important for people not to be too hard on themselves when they have challenges. What, what would you say your biggest failure or challenge has been professionally? And, and what did you learn from that experience? I would say my biggest failure is actually something I referenced earlier, which is when I was younger, I was quite shy and, and I lacked confidence. And because of that, I didn't have, let's say, as many friends as some other people in my classes. Because of that, as I got older and more confident, I really wanted to be liked a lot. And I think as a leader, it's good to want to be liked because it means that people will follow you. But as a leader, it's also dangerous to want to be liked too much because mm -hmm. that could result in you not making strong enough decisions. Every decision you make is, a, is like, well, we could do this, we do this, let's split the difference and do something in between, which is usually not the right way to make a decision. And you're also afraid to give critical feedback. You're afraid to let people go. You're afraid to kind of uh, make bold decisions. And I would say my biggest mistake was actually being too nice mm -hmm. and caring too much about what other people thought of me. And I know why psychologically I did. And I think as you get older, you start to realize, hey, I'm not doing the company any favors. I'm not doing other people any favors. And it's more important to be kind than nice, like I referenced. How did you, how did you approach that? Or how did, you, how did you grow through that? Well, there's a book I read, actually. It's called The Courage to Be Disliked, which is a great title. It takes courage. Um, the other thing is that you read things on, you know, Glassdoor or whatever it is. And as a leader, it can be very painful. 
to read, you know, negative feedback about yourself or about your style, about things that you're, you're making, you're, you're, you're making decisions on. And, um, at a certain point though, I realized that my goal is not for people to like me. The goal is for our company to succeed. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that means making strong decisions. Sometimes it means making a layoff. Sometimes yep. that means changing product strategy. Sometimes it means changing business strategy. Those are not popular decisions, but I think the goal is not to be an effective CEO. It's not a popularity contest. That's the bottom line. And, and I had made enough of those mistakes that I realized almost every time I'm making a mistake is because I'm being too nice and I just need yep. to get past it. What has been one of the, the hardest decisions you've had to make that kind of where you had to maybe break away from choosing the outcome that would have resulted in, in people liking you? Yeah. Okay, good. So, I mean, I'll give the example, example of when the pandemic hit, which is, you know, the pandemic hit and meetup had always been really only about IRL in person. Mm-hmm. And many of the people at meetup said, we cannot allow virtual events. That's like the anti meetup. That's Facebook. We hate Facebook. We're, we're about getting together in person. This thing's going to blow yeah. over in a couple of weeks. Don't worry, David. And I, and I said to a lot of people, I said, no, this could take a couple of months even, let, let alone a couple of years, right? This could take a couple of months even. We need to let people, I mean, it, it was so bad that at one point, Scott Heif, our founder at a WeWork event, took a sledgehammer to a, to a VR device and smashed it into lots of little pieces to say how terrible kind of anything that was, you know, VR was. And our entire Meetup was, we use technology to get people off of technology. That's literally what we said. We're like the anti-technology tech company. So how could you be the anti-technology tech company and embrace purely virtual, you know, groups, you know, that aren't in person? And I basically said, no, this this is something that we're going to do. The company's entire future is at stake. And we're not going to go down because of, you know, what our business model happened to have been in the past. And we need to be flexible for the future. So that's an example where I happen to have made the right decision. There's plenty of examples where I made the wrong decision. But that's an example where I went against the grain of a lot of people. And at the end, everyone's like, my God, thank you, David, for not listening to us. We, we were too stuck in what Meetup was rather than what Meetup needs to be. First off, a sledgehammer to a VR headset is one hell of a state. <laughs> I can imagine going on- online with Meetup, yeah, was, was not going to win you any popularity contests if that was the, the general sentiment. Exactly. Exactly. So what advice would you have for someone, maybe someone in the audience who wants to become a CEO one day and and work towards that position that you're in? Sure. So being a CEO, one of the most important things that you can do is you need a variety of experiences. If you're in sales and you've been in sales for five years ago, for 10 years ago, for 15 years ago, and all you know is sales, it is going to be a lot harder for you to succeed that if you spend time in marketing, if you spend time in product, if you spend time in other disciplines, because one of the things that a CEO does that I spend a lot of time in is finding the connections between different functions and ensuring that different functions are working effectively with each other and knowing enough about the different areas to be able to do so. So I would say having a variety of different experiences in product and sales and revenue and cost in understanding finance and analytical skills, you don't have to be the expert to become a great CEO. You have to hire the experts to be a great CEO, but you have to be great at, at understanding the interrelationships between different functions. And you just need to be able to ask thoughtful, smart questions and then kind of get out of people's way that know a lot more than you do. Um, so that's one. The second is just hiring top talent. CEOs succeed or fail based on whom they hire and not being afraid to make changes if someone's not the right person. And building the best management team, like, you know, Jim Collins said, first, who, then what? First, have the best right people on the team and then figure out what your strategy. And last but not least, I would just say you need a motivating mission. You need a motivating vision. For Meetup, our mission is around curing the loneliness epidemic, really serves to motivate and serves as a anchor for our decision making. And if you're a, a leader that doesn't believe that, that, that you know, mission swishing, mission whatever, then you're not going to get the following that you need, you know, to, to motivate, to want to work, you know, the hours that people work um, in order to kind of build a great product experience.
no, that that makes complete sense. And I love the vision, or I love the mission of of curing the loneliness pandemic uh, epidemic. I I didn't realize that was Meetup's uh, Meetup's mission. So as we're as we're approaching the the last few minutes here of this live session, if you were to summarize one or two takeaways from the book that you want the audience to know today, what would those be? Great. So one is that you have more ability to impact your future than you realize. And many people, you know, who take what's called an external locus of control and think, oh, things just happened to them. No. Like if you you read the book, Jacob, as you did, you'll see like I created a lot of things because luck can actually be facilitated. If you, you could work hard and create lucky experiences. And, and I would say, don't let life happen to you. Don't let work happen to you. Take as much ownership as you can and, po- and, and to drive positive things. That's one big takeaway from the book. And the second kind of broader takeaway from the book about life is, is a yearbook quote of mine that was my high school yearbook quote that I'll just share, which is, Sometimes in our pursuit of happiness, it's important to pause and just be happy. And I think part of the book, whether it's about leadership or decision-making, is if you're, if you're miserable, you're not going to be able to be successful as a leader. You're not going to be able to succeed in business. And you're not going to be able to succeed in your personal life either. The more that people can focus on, 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 on joy in their day-to-day that will translate into smarter and better decisions throughout their life. And everything can't just be all planning for your future. Sounds like enjoy the present. Exactly. Great. Well, before we wrap up here, where can folks uh, first off find your book? And then if people want to connect with you afterwards, what's the best way to do that? Okay. So first of all, to all the people that are here, you know, the 250 plus, thank you for joining. I'm really appreciative that you did. Hopefully it was helpful. I love getting LinkedIn invites. So I love connecting with people through LinkedIn. Send me a LinkedIn invite. Just type in David Siegel meetup. You'll find me in a second. And then send me an invite and hopefully we can connect. I would love that. Also, you could follow me on Twitter at at David Mayer Siegel, David M-E-I-R Siegel. That's my Twitter handle. And turn to the book. Amazon, I hear, sells a whole bunch of books. But frankly... (laughs) The audio version of the book is possibly better than the random one. So an Audible or the audio version or the Kindle version of Decide and Conquer is great. Um, and, you know, I'm actually with books in every Barnes and Noble in the country as well. You know, if you check it out and you have an opinion about it, good or bad, I love getting constructive feedback, then um, we'd love to hear any feedback as well. So David, once again, thank you so much for your time today. Really enjoyed learning about uh, your experience with leadership and community. And thank you, everyone else, for for uh, for joining us today. Thank you. And feel free to everyone to reach out to me. Have a good one, Jacob. That's all, folks. Thanks again for listening to Hardly Working. Join us live next time and talk directly to the speakers and who knows, end up here. Fishbowl is a social network where professionals of the same industry have anonymous career conversations. You can download Fishbowl on the App Store or Google Play. If you want to host a Fishbowl live event, get in touch at live at fishbowlapp.com. See you soon.